Hello and welcome to Out Loud. I'm your host, Greg Thompson. Today I'm sitting down with Kelsey Davis. Kelsey is fresh off of graduating from Vanderbilt Divinity School with her Master's in Divinity. While she's been here in Nashville, she's been the Chaplain Assistant for Young Adult Ministry at St. Augustine's Episcopal Chapel and the School Chapel Intern at the Episcopal School of Nashville. After her graduate studies at the University of Portland, Kelsey followed a career playing pro soccer and later coaching. Now, at the end of her time at Vanderbilt, Kelsey will soon begin a new role as the Curator for Emerging Communities for the Episcopal Diocese of El Camino Real in California. Kelsey is Episcopalian, identifies as queer, goes by the gender pronouns she, her, hers, and is married to her wife, Heather, of two years. Our conversation leads to questions of what it takes to truly listen and be in community with one another today. So with that in mind, let's take a listen. Thanks for joining us, Kelsey. Thank you. So um, to start off, um, when we chatted before the interview, uh, you explained to me that you identify as lesbian, but also more broadly as queer. Mm. Could you um, could you break down those terms for us and specifically what those terms mean to you? Sure. Um, so... I my my knee jerk impulse was to say that I identify as a lesbian um, simply because I'm I'm cisgendered and I am I am uh, cisgender female and I am married to a woman who is also cisgender female and so um, you know I've only really only had romantic relationships with female with females with women um, throughout my life. And so, so that's the knee jerk is that the romantic partnering has, has always been with women. Um, but I would say sort of panning out from that for me is, is a more, um, you know, more holistically is, is that I identify more so with, with a queer, with a queer labeling. Um, and that to me, and Heather and I talk about this a lot, but that to me is more, um, that sort of whatever is seemingly normative, we, kind of want to shake up and challenge, um, which is for me both a, you know, a spiritual um, and and a romantic thing. Um, so where I find intimacy, um, you know, is not just necessarily in, in gender or sex, but also in like disposition and posture. Um, and so to me, that's a queer way to move through the world um, is to to challenge whatever is is normative um, culturally, um, and also uh, just just always always sort of be working against the stream of mm. of assumptions and what what is um, what is status quo. Mm. So something you also said um, before we sat down was that. Um, you discovered girls and Jesus at the same time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I loved, I just loved that. Yeah. And, um, and so what, wait, when was that moment for you uh, of that self-realization, mm. if you will? And what was that time like for you? Mm. Yeah, I, I didn't, um, I grew up, I guess the term is unchurched. So I grew up unchurched in Southern California. My parents were, um, pretty liberal, and um, so I had a lot of, of free reign, I guess you could say. Um, you know, I was I was brought up on the canon of of novels and literature and Shakespeare and Canterbury Tales, and you know, um, 
the book of virtues and you know things like that so so for me those were the stories that really shaped my moral compass and when i when i became a teenager i think in 7th grade i remember sitting next to my best friend at the time in pe class in in middle school and um she she invited me to her youth group a non-denominational church and i was intrigued um i think i was more so intrigued maybe by her than i was necessarily youth group at yeah. the time now <laughs> reflecting back uh, but I couldn't go because I always had soccer practice on the Wednesday night that youth group was. Then when I got to high school, um, my first my first girlfriend um, or evolving love, I guess she was my best friend, and then you know things became um, more romantic and more we were more physically intrigued with each other than friends are normally. Mm-hmm. She was a pretty devout, non-denominational Christian, and she was really the first person that started to actually tell me about Christianity, about this Jesus character, and um, you know, and I obviously loved her and wanted to be around her, so I started to go to church with her, and um, kind of just from there got swept up in this in this Jesus story and um you know I remember coming home and telling my telling my parents I came out to my parents um when I was like 16 17 years old um was this before or after so this was after so we were in you know friendship um in a relationship um and I was going to church with her and um came home decided to come out to my parents. My parents were, like, fine with it. I mean, my mom cried because she just felt like I... She was worried that I I felt like I couldn't tell them or I was going to be mad or something. They were going to be mad, but they weren't. My dad basically said, I've known since you were 10, and um, I've been, like, kind of waiting for this day. and Super loving and amazing. Um, So it was cool. Um, But then about a year later, you know, we continued and... The relationship and about a year later um i decided that uh i wanted to be baptized okay. and um when i came back to my parents and told them that they they were like wait what <laughs> what <laughs> then my dad was like okay now we need to talk let's i'm gonna take you he took me straight down to barnes and noble i remember this like took me to the world religion section bought me a couple of books on comparative religion and said read these and if you still want to do the christianity thing at the end of this like that's okay but at least know what you're getting yourself into and promise me that you will never try to convert anyone to christianity Mm -hmm. and that you will always respect other people's belief systems and and perspectives and remain open even as you you know pursue pursue what you feel like you need to do um that is such good advice it's so good and at the time i was like starting point i know and at the time i was like sure dad whatever you know i just wanted to get baptized um but you know that those promises stuck with me and and i really do try my best to live by those two things so wow so it sounds like um (laughs) 
it sounds like coming out into Christianity was more like more a bigger deal to your parents than yeah. <laughs> than the normal coming out. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, coming out coming out into Christianity was definitely um more earth shattering. Mm-hmm. You know, like we had to work through that as a family and I remember very clearly that the f- the first time I wanted to go on a missions trip um my parents were very resistant. And at that point in high school, I had I'd already traveled all over the world with soccer. And so I remember fighting with them and saying, you'll let me go on these soccer trips all over the world, but you won't let me go on this mission trip this one time, you know, where we're driving. I'm not even, I don't have to get on an airplane. And um, I remember sitting on the floor of my room, writing in my journal and saying like, this feels so unfair and being, you know, mad. And, but yeah, it was, it was definitely something we had to work through. Um, My dad, uh, was was an intellectual man. He he was a lawyer and majored in Shakespearean literature and um, was a hippie for all intents and purposes. <laughs> so he was he he was also really concerned for me too. Um, I remember one of the first conversations we had was uh, after I got baptized. He said, "You know, I I I want you to remember too that I'm your father and I love you and I love you no matter what and." And if God is our collective father or parent, then you need to remember that God loves you no matter what, too. And he was really afraid that Christianity would be a long, hard road for me because of my orientation. Mm. And also, I think, because of my personality, too. Um, and so he was he was really afraid that I would be rejected by the church. What about your personality was he worried about? I... I'm I'm a kind of a creative quirky cat. <laughs> I'm like put together enough I think to function well in society, but um you know when I'm in my home space and kind of letting my free spirit reign, I'm a quirky. I'm a quirky kid. So I think he knew that, you know, yeah. and uh Christianity has a long history of trying to hammer that stuff out of us instead of embracing natural free spirited quirk. Mm. I think he was concerned that I would allow that to get hammered out of me. Was that the Christianity you ultimately encountered? Yeah, at first. Mm-hmm. Um, at first it was. Well, I was met with a lot of love in my my youth my youth formation. I was met with a lot of love. I had a pretty amazing youth pastor and youth mentors, um, one of which helped coordinate our wedding, you know, mm. two summers ago and is an amazing human being that I'm still grateful for but you know as I evolved I I encountered more of that um in undergraduate my undergraduate years and after college Mm. but not now yeah yeah Yeah. not now I'm the Episcopal Church is good to me I, I love it so yeah so how did you um see this first church that you were at initially mm-hmm. you said that was a non-denominational church mm-hmm. so then how did you ultimately land on being episcopal um i think it's like the grace of god or something i think that's what we call it but the work of the spirit um so i i started off at the non non-denominational church and like i said my youth formation there was i was i was very loved um and had a great experience. 
and so that kept that kept the kindle of the fire burning and i instantly uh i instantly fell in love with the, the god story and with the, the 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 person and the character of jesus and so for me having had my first relationship with a woman tied so closely into the inception of seeing my place in this God story or being invited into that, um, into, into the family, if you will, and getting baptized. Um, my faith and sexuality were, they, and they still are absolutely inseparable. Like I, I haven't known a minute without Jesus and without like the intimacy of a woman's love in my life. And so what ended up happening was that when I moved away to college at Portland, I continued to seek out a non-denominational church space because that's what I had been formed in as a youth. And it was good um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, there was natural community there. There, uh, there was wonderful worship and, and music and a pretty amazing commitment to studying scripture and, and wrestling, wrestling theologically with, with belief. However, what I found was sort of a consistent mantra of, of this love the sinner, hate the sin. And so I felt like I either was going to fit, I was either going to find my belonging by renouncing my orientation or I was going to have to wander around and figure something else out like the two became mutually exclusive to me like we'll love you and you're welcome in here to a point and then we're going to pray for you and hope that you're healed or you become celibate or like something like like there was like a stipulation around it condition yeah condition yeah and so that just that was heartbreaking that was absolutely heartbreaking and um like how do I choose between this god that I love and and the way that I feel naturally inclined and predisposed to love um and I remember uh being at the University of Portland which is a holy cross school and sitting in mass for the first time on a Sunday night I just thought what the heck I'll just wander over there I'll try it out I was exhausted because as being a student athlete usually we had games on Sundays and we're traveling and I wandered <clears throat> wandered over there and I remember the the sky there was a full moon in the sky it was, I mean, it was just like a starry night it was beautiful I was all by myself I had I, I remember I walked in and the baptismal font was there and I thought that was beautiful and I sat down and saw you know, some candles lit and there was a community gathered of students. And I remember moving through the liturgy and, you know, standing up, sitting down, you know, saying the prayers together, the responsive stuff, all of it. And then the homily that was given, I don't remember the content of what was said, but I remember how I felt and I thought, oh my God, this this is exactly where I need to be. It was like, 
it was like the spirit of God, like, like kissed, like kissed my cheek or something. And I thought, my God, this is, this is beautiful. And there's, you know, it's quiet space and we spent time in silence and, um, the homily was meaningful and was more open and and inviting in than it was sort of any sort of judgment or beating down or beating anything out of any of us. So I thought, well, I saw that there was a silent retreat coming up and I had a couple days and so I thought, I'll try that. And I remember going on the silent retreat and that was absolutely life-changing for me. Well, I slept for two days straight of it. <laughs> two of the three days I basically slept, <laughs> which happens on silent retreats. Yeah. And so, um, but I remember walking and just being completely still and alone. Um, you know, there's a community, but alone in my own conversation in my own head and meeting with a spiritual director for the first time, which was like an anomaly to me. I hadn't even heard of that before. Mm. And after the retreat, I continued to meet with that spiritual director. She was the first person who really sat down with me and from a a very centered, faithful um, posture said, let's explore this faith and sexuality thing. Um, Let's let's just for a minute imagine that, that God is actually love like the Bible says. Mm-hmm. And, and what would, what does that do when I tell you that? What does that do in your spirit? I burst into tears. And so we spent about six months meditating and praying and contemplating truly what it, what it feels like for if God, if it's possible that God is actually love, what does that really mean for my life? And so slowly but surely, all of the layers started to pull back. And I got to a place where I was like, well, if this God is good and we are good and if God is love and we are made by love and for love, then maybe the way that I love isn't so so bad after all. And it sounds so simple, but when that like, satiates into your soul there's something incredible there's something revolutionary that happens and all of a sudden it it stops becoming about like who I was loving but how I was loving Mm. and so out of that like this beautiful ethic started to develop so I'm like okay not only who did Jesus love but how did Jesus love because I want to love like that so I found my way into the Catholic Church for a minute in college and fell in love with the liturgy, sacramental sacramental theology, um, the order of worship, um, contemplative prayer, the saints. I mean, all of it. I was just loving it. I felt like I'd stepped into a family that I'd lost. Wow. Maybe it was like prodigal-esque or something. I don't know. Yeah. There's some parable in there. So, <laughs> And then... Fast forward, I kind of, I went away from it all because, you know, I graduated, played professional soccer, um, then ended up coaching college soccer and um, got involved with helping out with a pup church in Fort Worth, Texas that was a extension of an uh, 
uh, Lutheran church in the area, ELCA church. Okay. And so that was my community. That was my worshiping community for a few years, and it was awesome. And I, I got to then experience what, what creative ministry looks like and what creative worship can look like. And so I had this, like, Catholic, holy Holy Cross Catholic experience, this, like, deep liturgical sacramental stuff going on, juxtaposed now with this, like, creative worshiping community. And I thought, my God, can we, like, smash these two things together? <laughs> because that would be a dream. And that community was so welcoming and so loving also. Hmm. So the love I experienced... Um, from 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 Holy Cross priests and Dominican sisters at the University of Portland, they were so good to me and walked with me through all of these questions. Mm-hmm. And this pub church community was like an explosion of love and goodness also. So then I got to Vanderbilt here, and one of my buddies said, you have to go meet Becca Stevens at St. Augustine's. So you will love the Episcopal Church, you will you will love Becca. You will be more than welcome here. Like just come. Mm. So I went and um, remembered that I had actually been baptized Episcopalian as a baby, even though I was unchurched. So my grandparents were Episcopalian. <laughs> so this is like this oh, weird wow. full circle thing happening. I was like, oh, yeah, that that, that Episco- the Episcopal Church. That sounds interesting to me. Yeah, I think I remember that word from somewhere. And my, I called my mom, and she was like, yeah, you were baptized Episcopalian. I was like, okay. <laughs> so, um, and I joke that I was like a stray cat at St. Augustine's because I went to one um, Wednesday night contemplative Eucharist dinner. They Literally, they fed, like they fed me. And then I just never went back. Like I just kept going back there and then like getting like literally fed and spiritually fed. So I was like the stray cat of St. Augustine's. And um, I don't think that's not normal for some people. <laughs> right? A lot of churches, they show up and then. Yeah. Leave. Come back. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I found my way to the Episcopal Church through St. Augustine's and yeah. have absolutely fallen in love with the community and with the denomination. Um, and I'm hoping to devote my life's work to the Episcopal Church and um, the gifts that God has given me to, sh- to share those resources with the Episcopal Church. So I've been baptized, confirmed, and Heather's been baptized and confirmed, my wife. Uh-huh. So so we're like signed, sealed, and delivered right now in terms of, <laughs> of being full in. Yeah, yeah, you're completely on board. Yeah, absolutely. So what... Um... So what what has that been like for like for your relationship? Like how has how have you have how have both of you kind of walked through this mm-hmm. journey together, and and again kind of bringing that like as you've understood this as this faith piece has kind of gotten some new labels and and you've started to kind of figure out what it means for you more. Like what has that meant for your relationship? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, Heather and I f- find a lot of. Uh, commonality in in our spirituality she she has an interesting story too Um, she grew up Methodist I would say that Heather loves the Episcopal Church I love we love the Episcopal Church because there's there's so much freedom to ask really important and good questions in a way that's faithful 
and there's a lot of freedom to be creative, um, to join in the work of the Spirit of God, and to be a part of a, a loving community that's that's imperfect and that prioritizes reconciliation and difference and says let's stay at this table and like love each other and try to find our way through it and so you know unity through reconciliation is really important to the Episcopal Church so for Heather and I as as a young couple living into the sacrament of marriage you know having a community that's about loving across difference that's about reconciliation that is constantly trying to find more ways to be hospitable in mind, body, and spirit. It's really edifying for our marriage to, to see those examples all around us because we also seek that in our marriage to stay together and be faithful and ask really important questions and wrestle with things and um, to always seek reconciliation with each other you know, ourselves and each other. So really at the the base, sort of the theological core and the ethical values of the denomination really match what, what the theological core and ethical values are of our marriage yeah. also. So, so it's shaping us, which it should, it should do. It's sort of a mutual challenge and a mutual nurture. And so, um, you know, we, we have the freedom to, to push and pull as much as the body pushes pushes and pulls us to. Um, but it's been it's been great for our marriage. I I love being thirty somethings and and committed to a community. You know, intergenerationally committed to a community. Without kids, you know, like we actually just like purely want to be in the community, and can't wait to bring children into that community too yeah and I think that's really um I think that's really a struggle for um for the millennial generation if you will as organized church becomes less is becoming less and less popular it's finding but despite that finding community I think is still important to most of the people I talk to and Mm -hmm. it's still at the heart of what they're maybe looking for and whether it's through a graduate school program they're in or through their coworkers in the office, like finding a cohesive community is still something I think so many people yearn for. Yeah. Um, that's so great that you found that there. Yeah. And I think that, you know, with the millennial generation and as a millennial, um, I'll speak for myself and not the entire generation and population, but <laughs> the, for, for us, for me and for us, and I can speak for us cause we talk about this a lot that for us belonging belonging really precedes belief for us mm-hmm. so like while i might not completely be down with all of the words of the nicene creed on sunday morning i can understand that that that, that creed is a <clears throat> is a historical document of of our faith that it's telling me something about where we've come from mm-hmm. but but that is not the barrier for me being present on Sunday morning anymore. What what invites me into Sunday morning is is the belonging and the belovedness that I feel when we are present. And so we can figure out and wrestle with all of the belief stuff as we go along. And we are doing that as a community. 
But that's where I see that the church is going to have to continue to evolve is that historically belief has come first and then you get initiated in and then belonging happens. Mm. And I think we have to find, we have to find good ways to create spaces of belonging. And a lot of that, especially as a queer woman, um, comes with knowing that my full self and full embodiment is is embraced and loved and invited to flourish in in church space yeah what is it um what is it meant for you to belong in your church space like how is that how's the community communicate to you you belong yeah um well for one a lot of them showed up at our wedding, you know, <laughs> yeah. every everyone that uh, was invited in. But I think, but I, th- I think, so yes, and it's everything from a, a smile walking through the door, you know, every time we walk through the door, to being invited to, sh- to share our gifts in the community. So for me, I've been in te- and invited to teach and preach um to to help lead in different ways to um to be a a curator of our young adult community heather has been invited in in different ways to use her gifts as well um you know we get to go to birthday parties and celebrations and pray together and laugh together and cry together so you know, I think that there are there are practical components as much as as much as spiritual components that, um, you know, not only not only are we welcome, but we're celebrated. Um, I've also seen our community stand with us in a diocese that is tough on on this issue and in this conversation is very divided on faith and sexuality and. And so I've seen them stand with us. And so it's, it's, the smile is an authentic, genuine smile. Like you really are glad to have us here. And also you are glad to have us here because you love us. And because you love us, you will stand with us in every form, you know, um, from listening to me process crazy ideas for paper topics to me weeping because I'm frustrated that we still couldn't get married in our church here to, um, you know, going out to lunch and, and talking about how good the guacamole is at Chipotle, you know? So it's like spanning, it's like spanning what, what life, what life is. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like they're, um, like a major part of your life. Like, oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. What, um, what comes to mind too, though, is that like with community and, and, and belonging also comes commitment like diving in head first and saying like all right i'm gonna really like stick it out and go to that lunch at chipotle today because i should get to know these people yeah. or something what um what what kind of what caught you like what what got you to make that commitment hmm. so so i have always grown up on teams since I was five years old. I've never not known life without team and all of the rituals that come with that, all of the commitment that comes with that to showing up because I said I would 
and thinking that someone's going to care if I'm not there. I, that was, that was ingrained in me when I was little. And so for me, community like this is a natural, it's just a natural evolution in how I understand team and team dynamics is that I'm a member of this community and I've been confirmed and baptized and work here. Um, I have listened to people's stories here. So I also am, I am in possession then of some of the stories of people's lives. So that in and of itself is a commitment to keep showing up. Um, and, and so it's just what I've known. And it doesn't mean that that's all I do 24 hours a day or that we don't take breaks or say we can't be places. But I really try to be a good teammate, you know, and whether that's as a friend in my friendship circles or as a church community member, it's like I have gifts. God has given me gifts and my response is to share those gifts and my responsibility is to share those gifts and to receive the gifts from others that are in community too. And so if my, if I don't show up, if my presence isn't there, I'm not doing that. Um, I also, like I said, I'm a stray cat. I mean, I'm an only child. And so I've always had to kind of make friends as I've moved through life and find pockets of communities and so I also have always lived the value of that too. Um, I I joke that I was, you know, born of a mother and a father, but raised raised by a village of people. So people have always been the most important thing in my life, because I wouldn't have survived or even thrived without them. Yeah. I think there's something really humble about that of and, and well and selfless about that. Um, going into a, a, a church community especially and not asking like what am I going to get out of this but to your point like what am I what gifts am I offering what am I bringing to the table to share with everyone else yeah it's huge and then we see that symbolically in in the liturgy depending on the tradition but yeah mm. yeah so your thesis while you've been at Vanderbilt has been on um, LGBT youth in the Episcopal Church. What um, what have been some of your findings in this mm. process of writing that? That the church, no matter the denomination, um, has a re- has a deep responsibility to open its ears even wider and to center youth and especially youth and young adult voice in in the community and surrounding culture. The, the age group that I researched was adolescents, um, which arguably, depending on who you're reading, is, is now from about 10 to 12-ish to about 22-ish. So it stretches basically a decade of life. Um, it is the, it is the, based off of, of, Uh, neuroscience it is the second wave of plasticity in the brain so what happens from zero to three in terms of development and formation is uh, scientists are now finding that 
um, adolescence is the second wave of plasticity. So it's sort of the second shot at um, really intense brain development that your identity and your formation is um, that stage of life is like deeply impacted by the events that are happening. So for example, if I were to say to you, tell me one of this, tell me one of your memories where you felt most loved or you felt most hurt or, you know, your first kiss or something, you know, that the, that intensity, those memories that typically you would, someone would share would be from adolescence um, because of that um, second wave of plasticity in the brain that the imprinting that's happening during adolescence is, is like lifelong stuff. And so I really wanted to look at um, LGBTQ plus youth and to see what, what's going on in adolescence, but what's going on particularly um, with our LGBTQ plus youth community. Um, what are some of the social realities that, that they're facing that we as a church body need to be listening to so that our welcome of hospitality isn't just sort of an empty, yeah, come be in our communities, but then you have to assimilate and adapt and change so that you fit the prescribed structure of what's happening. And, you know, one of the things that I found um, from one of the articles that I read was that um, researchers have found, especially in the Mid-South region, so all of my research was based in the Mid-South region, so this area of the country, but that um, youth that are rejected by their peers are 20 times more likely to attempt self-harm or Mm -hmm. attempt suicide. 20 times? 20 times. Wow. And so we have to back up and say, well, where where are those ideologies coming from, like those rejection type of behaviors in adolescence? And they're culturally conditioned. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're they're coming from the, the... the school, the, the religious, sort of in the family spheres. And so as a religious institution, what is our responsibility and how we are conditioning and the messaging that we're putting forth into the, into the family or into individuals' lives that are either going to be messages of hope and love or they're going to be messages of, of, of death and despair and rejection. Yeah. And so um, I found a lot of things. I could probably talk for an hour about it. But, <laughs> but I think at, at the baseline, it's, it's the, the whole project was, was about looking holistically from all of these different lenses, um, you know, the theological, the ethical, the social, the spiritual, as to what's going on with LGBTQ plus youth. And then how can we listen to what's going on and what the needs and hopes and desires are alongside the social realities? Put those things together and be open enough as an institution to make changes Mm -hmm. so that all people can flourish in the church and have life and have life abundantly. So that was the crux of the project. And so at the end of it, I made practical suggestions to say, based off of all of this research, everything that we now know in this paper, here are my like 
practical suggestions for ministry of like how to restructure what the church is doing. Sure. One of which is like this binary sorting of you have men's group and women's group or the girls get separated from the boys. That doesn't work. What if we mm-hmm. grouped, and, and this comes from an idea I found in a book by Cody Sanders, um, which is wonderful. It's a guide to ministry with LGBTQIA youth. It's, a, I think, one of the best books on youth ministry. Um, but Cody quotes another woman I can't remember right now, but basically he offers up the suggestion, what if we structure youth ministries or our ministries by learning style or interest or creative capacity rather than by gender or by sex? So like what if we had one group that wanted that loved to hiking in the woods and you go hike and do that or if we had another group that wanted to sit down and have a cup of tea and a good conversation and study the bible together you know what if we just reimagined how we sort people mm-hmm. and by what criteria we are sorting people and i thought that was brilliant and that's how we're already organizing ourselves on the line it seems with Facebook groups or meetups, it's so often organized by interest, just like that, except here it's, okay, you actually know these people and saw them at church on Sunday. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And what if, and what if, you know, especially for youth, you know, with sex education in the church or faith and sexuality education, it's not just the boys learn what the boy, you know, biology is in the girls, but what if the community was able to learn together? And start to destigmatize some of this this sort of taboo culture we have around sexuality. And what if the church took the lead on that? I think that's pretty. I think that would be pretty cool. That would be great. <laughs> well, and I think from my own experience of working at um, within the Catholic Church, it's whenever you bring up youth ministry, there's kind of this, or or really youth education in general, religious ed for k through 12 there's always this there was always this kind of groan of like oof, like we got to find volunteers we got to find teachers and it's it my where i was i i observed a lot of just kind of we just got to get through this and this is the curriculum this is what we're doing and it's it was there wasn't this kind of um viewpoint at all as to the magnitude of of the minds of our ability to shape the minds before us and i think that groan ultimately was like recognizing that like we're tired of this maybe that's why we can't get volunteers because somewhere within this system there's been a break and no one really wants to be here anymore that's my own hypothesis but hearing this this kind of uh, i think like proactive what if the church were the leader i mean like i think that would get i think that would get better turnout yeah for sure and I think, you know, with religious education or formation, right, the catechesis, I mean, you come from a Catholic perspective. I'm in the Episcopal Church. We're like cousins of each other. We and, joke that you're Catholic late. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, you know, we we both are, are equipped with this beautiful program of religious education. And mm-hmm. I love I love what the, the Episcopal Church is doing in terms of the youth curriculum. I think it's it's fantastic. Um, you know, I get to be a, a school chaplain right now for pre-K through fourth grade, and 
Um, you know, I work closely with our youth director at the church and I do young adult ministry. And so I, I love what our church is doing. I also think that there, there has to continue to be innovative, creative, and discerning ways for us to think about what religious education is truly because programs don't change people people transform people amen (laughs) yeah so if we get too stuck on the programs and getting through the curriculum and we lose the person um, or the personhood even of ourselves as the teachers um you know and i or the, not even the teachers, but the adult facilitators. I mean, the youth are the teachers also. Then, then we've missed it. Um, but if we can, if we can learn alongside one one another, stay open to the creative spirit of God, to be innovative in the way that we are engaging the material, so that it's life giving. I'd want to. I'd want to do that. You know. Um, so I just think it's it's has to be both, right? It has to be um, education, but it also has to be open to whatever we think we're doing to be adapted and changed, because that's how the spirit of God moves. So, and but that's the scary part is not to just copy and paste from ten years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is yeah. the scary part. Yeah. <laughs> what um. You said that you've been working with um, some of the youth and young adults at your parish, um, uh, and working with them about talking to them about faith and sexuality a bit. What have what have those conversations been like? Yeah, they're so um, our youth um, are under the the guidance of our youth director, and they do an amazing job with the faith and sexuality conversations. Our church publishing just put out a amazing curriculum called "These Are Our Bodies," I think in twenty sixteen. And I used part of it for for the research of the paper that I wrote. Um, and it's a it's a youth it's a faith and sexuality uh, curriculum for church and home, and it goes basically from infants all the way through thirty years old, and is developmentally appropriate along the way. And so, but our church our church was ha- have been having these faith and sexuality conversations for years um, prior to even this curriculum and. I think they're going to slowly adapt the curriculum as well into the conversation, but we're just really lucky because we have, um, you know, midwives and nurses and doctors, and we have beautiful people in our congregation who help um, with the youth education, who are well-versed on this stuff and know recent terminology and are open and affirming and embracing of um, our youth and our whole community and so I think they've done an amazing job so you are on the cusp of moving yeah and taking on a new role in uh what does it say here you're a curator for emerging communities that's a great title what um what will you be doing or what do you what do you, what do you hope to be doing in this new role um, mm. in in California, um, it is a great title. Um, when I saw when I saw the title and the job description, I cried. So I, I didn't <laughs> I didn't think a 
job a job like this existed in our church and it didn't this is a brand new position um which i'm incredibly grateful grateful for it's been a position that's been discerned by the diocese as a whole under the leadership of of bishop mary gray reeves for for some years now it's been i think a couple years in the making um so it's really you know my job at least for the for the long haul, but definitely for the interim, is is to do a lot of listening and to to learn the names and the stories of the people that are in the diocese, um, to learn their hopes and dreams, to to accompany them in those hopes and dreams, to um, to explore what emerging community means. What what is the I mean this term emerging communities like? What do you what do you expect that to be? What does that mean to you? Hmm. I see it. I see it as an image um, more than a definition right now. I think you know when I think of something emerging, I think of I think of a seed that's been planted in good soil. Hopefully, well, I know that it has because this diocese is is phenomenal. So. A seed that's been planted in good soil that's pushing through the earth that um, still needs to to be tended to, um, watered and given sunshine and the right nutrients um, to thrive. I see it also as church, a church that doesn't exist yet. So church in new shape and new forms by new definition um, there's an innovative and creative quality to an emerging community. I think that there's also a really cool harnessing of tradition, the right components of tradition that create the container so that we can live, like ritual or Eucharist or baptism, um, liturgy itself. And harnessing those components to help structure the creative community and invite more conversation, more dialogue with each other and with God. So I have a whiteboard in my bedroom that when I get up in the middle, I get weird ideas. I told you it was quirky. I get weird ideas in the middle of the night. I'll go right on my whiteboard. That's great. So I have a bunch of, I have a bunch of, uh, ideas already starting to sketch which means that I have to do even more listening once I get there because it's it's not just me and my ideas but I do have some like a pub a pub church or a pub theology type of environment would be an example of an emerging community or um you know a a group that gathers for a contemplative eucharist on a sunday night you know is an example of an emerging community. Um, so, so we'll see. And you know, when I spoke with the bishop, she said, "This is, you know, enjoy this this time of graduation season and transition." And she said, "And then we'll start to discern where the work begins." And she told me that it's less less of a birthing time and more of a uh, this has been a conception time. You know, it's been the inception of 
of all of this work and then we have to continue to birth it yeah so so that's where we are a lot of metaphor a lot of abstraction <laughs> but that's uh that's how the spirit works man i mean that's i think that's I, how ideas grow often yeah. is is you don't quite you don't know. know exactly what it's going to be you don't have a uh, a checklist no there's right away. there's no play there's no playbook <laughs> for this yeah. um which again is exciting and terrifying um but that means that i get to learn even more so how discernment really works and how listening and trusting the spirit of god really truly works mm. so i'm coming from an academic setting where um you know i'm recovering from perfectionism you know it's it's true it's a performance perfectionist culture that we live in and I'm stepping into some of the most spiritual work that I've done in my entire life where I have to say, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is not okay in graduate school. <laughs> right. You can't write a paper that just says, I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> but I don't know right now. I, and that's okay. Yeah. <sighs> um, I just have one more question. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about I, I think identity throughout and, you know, from you playing soccer to coming out to then coming out to your faith, then graduate school and now this new role you're going to be stepping into, like, do you feel like with all of this that's happened over the last decade or so, do you feel like you are more authentically you today and how is that how has that grown for you what a, what a great question i love that yeah i i feel the the most authentic at this moment in my life than i than i ever have mm. and um that is that is such a gift to feel comfortable in my own skin finally to know that everything that I am, my full identity um, from, from head to toe is, is deeply loved, is deeply loved um, by God. And I know that though because of the presence of the community in which I live. And, and so the idea, the, being told that, that I'm loved and deeply, deeply loved is no longer an idea for me. It has a spiritual and embodied quality because of the human beings that are around me. And I've held that mirror back up to me. And so I feel authentic, I feel known, I feel seen, I feel loved, understood even which is its own miracle. Um, and that is a direct result of the community. I cannot say that, that enough. Mm. And so that is also, you know, you asked why I show up to community. It's because I've been the recipient of, of people showing up in my life over and over and over again. So I think that you know, I hope I always remember the, the responsibility that we have to be careful and careful, like fully caring with how we show up with each other. 
thank you so much for taking the time to sit and chat. Yeah, thank you. A special thanks to Kelsey Davis again for joining us on this episode. For a few of the resources and terms mentioned during this interview, check out our show notes in the episode description and online on the episode guide you can find at outloudstories.com. This episode was made possible by hours of editing, both by me and by the wonderful, fantastic, and perhaps simultaneously biggest fan of the show, Meg McKellen. Thank you, Meg. To learn more about our show, visit us at outloudstories.com or on social media at outloudstories. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe so that you get our episode right when it drops. Next time on the show, we have Luther Young. The good boy who grew up in the church and sang in the children's choir and became the minister of music and went off to college and is doing really great things has now like disappointed us because he's gay. Um, and understanding how difficult that is for um, my family and, and people that helped raise me. It was, it's, it's, it was just difficult all around. We'll see you back here in two weeks. I'm your host, Greg Thompson. Thanks so much for listening. Peace.